Hi, it's Dan here, and I wanted to let you know that this is a very special episode of the show. Some glimpses from my chats with four previous guests. You'll hear about 10 minutes of each guest's 60-plus minute conversation, which will give you a small idea of the many topics that we covered. Also, you can listen to the entire conversation at either linernotes.ca or on any podcast platforms. Just search for Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Enjoy. Today, I'm honored to have as my guest the incomparable Mark Jordan an icon of the Canadian music scene, a prolific and enormously successful singer, songwriter, and producer who has written hit songs that include Living in Marina Del Rey, Survival, Rhythm of My Heart, and many others. His songs have been recorded by a number of well-known artists, including Diana Ross, Rod Stewart, Cher, Bette Midler, Chicago, Amanda Marshall, and Josh Groban. It's an impressive resume by any measure. I want to do a plug early in this uh, podcast to let people know that really consistently active you've been for decades and your body of work was, I was pleasantly uh, surprised actually. I I didn't realize that the the bulk and the body of your work and quality work too. So I want to encourage people to go to markjordan.com if you haven't listened to uh, Mark's music for a time or if you haven't revisited his catalog, I would suggest uh, that my listeners do that because uh, really, really impressive. And it seems like you're a workaholic. You you don't have any gaps in your career that I could find. Is that right? <laughs> Dan, I love what I do. And uh, so I, I, I often go into my studio before I go down for breakfast in the morning. I really can't wait to create stuff plus the fact that i'm i'm dyslexic quite Mm -hmm. severely dyslexic and so music is uh, something that i can do and um, painting is something i can do and i understand it i guess your dad was your main musical influence yeah he was a montreal born classical singer and uh, he moved to new york and, uh, you know, he sang with big bands and orchestras. And uh, and uh, then he was offered uh, a show when television first came to Canada. Um, or, or pretty soon after that, he was, he was offered a show on CBC. And he did that. So he came back to Toronto. Uh, I was born in Brooklyn, but I, I basically grew up in, in Toronto. So you dropped out of film school to, to pursue music. And then I, I see here you uh, played with Bobby V. Oh, very early on, yeah. I joined a cover band, yeah, and we played. And and uh, when Bobby V came to up to Toronto to play the circuit up here, he hired us. I don't know how. I guess for an agent. I was, I'm not really sure to this day. Yeah, it must have been fortuitous for you to to play with somebody who had already had a name, right? That must have been a good in to the business for you. Yes, it was. It was. It was great to talk to him and to get his insights and. Uh, into you know what you had to do and yeah and we we stayed up late many nights and talked about it and and it wasn't uh it wasn't too long after that maybe five or six years that i that i went to la so then you got you got to go in the studio and do marina del rey which is obviously very very well-known song any of us that were around at that time which i was i mean that was the the ultimate summer music right the feel good kind of stuff that was the fastest song I ever wrote, and I, that was the only song I wrote when I was in California. I'd had all the other songs written. Okay. When I was uh, on my way to the hotel from the airport, uh, we passed a sign on the highway that said, next exit, Marina Del Rey. And I thought, oh, what a Marina Del Rey. What a great name that is. Yeah. You know, so I, um, 
I went to the hotel. I literally wrote that song in an hour. My dad, you know, he was a classical singer, but he loved all kinds of music. But he used to play a lot of orchestral music on the record player at home. And I got real tired of that. So I would hum alternate melodies over the orchestration. Oh, interesting. And I learned to improvise that way. So when I write, I listen to the chord melody of what is the backing track. And I write something contrapuntal to that, which is not a usual thing for pop. So you you got to just dig into yourself and 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 write about what affects you as a human being because if if that affects you as a human being it probably affects other human beings we're we're more alike than we are different. I listen to what the track is saying. It'll already have a vibe. It'll already have a kind of point of view because it it has a chord melody. Every song has a essentially a chord melody so to listen to it and then you have to so it has to adhere to that initial direction and then you build on that what i was able to do was write really i I think very good songs and they would go into this big pile of mark jordan songs and then the the publishers uh would present them to uh artists you know, to artists that they thought could do them. You did those two albums in L.A., and then what happened after that? Well, my deal was over, and uh, then, so what did I do? Oh, I was I starved. I remember sitting in my apartment. It's a little house, little rundown house near Hollywood Bowl, and uh, I was I had no furniture. I had a black and white TV on a cardboard box, and uh, and one of those plastic chaise lounges for outside. Wow! And my ass was falling through the webbing, and I thought I'm I, I'm going to have to go back to Toronto. And just as luck would have it, I I ran into a guy named Ronnie Vance, and Ronnie Vance's brother was the guy who discovered Steely Dan in New York, Kenny Vance. Oh. Ronnie was a big music guy, and and he was a fan because he used to come down to the sessions for Mannequin. So he said, I've just been uh, hired as vice president for Warner Chapel Publishing. And he said, do you want to write some songs for us? I thought, well, hell, I'll try it. It went on for about 18 years. Clive Davis. Clive signed me. To a, just a little singles deal. Yeah, it was a 45, right? Released under Arista, I think it says here. Yeah, when he was president of Arista, I met with yeah. Clyde. And uh, I think he wanted me to, as a songwriter, more yeah. than an artist. I had a million deals. I'll tell you, I had an Arista deal. You know, I knew Ahmed Erdogan because, uh, because uh, I, I wrote uh, for, for Manhattan Transfer. And he wanted me to write pop songs for Manhattan Transfer. And he goes, you know, Mark, <laughs> you know, uh, enough of this jazz stuff with the Manhattan Transfer. He said, <laughs> he said even, their, even their fans hate it. Yeah. You know, gotta, they got to do some more pop stuff. It was absolute bullshit. But, yeah. but uh, God bless him. He was a sweet man anyway. And I, I loved hanging out with those guys. There were guys like Amit. And um, Jerry Wexler, they were all gangsters. But the thing was, 
they were also brilliant. They actually loved music. And they, they understood it. And they knew what was good. But they were tough hombres, I'll tell you that. Stuart, over the years, I've, God, it's, it's been, I'm still writing for him. Oh, nice. The story uh, of Rhythm of My Heart is interesting. The, the demo was sent to England, London in about 1983 or 4 on a cassette. And the, and the head of Warner Chapel Music in London heard it. And he thought, this would be a great song for Rod Stewart, but not now. Hmm. Because Rod was, you know, making records like, do you, do you think I'm sexy? And Right, he was in the 80s was, phase, right? Yes. So, so this guy, Rob Dickens, who was the head of, of Warner Chapel, said, timing is not right. So he put the cassette on the shelf of his favorite cassettes. And then he, Rod wanted to get out of that kind of genre of music. He wanted to make more serious records again. And he came to Rob Dickens. And he said, I want to make a, a real record. I want to get back to, you know, more meaningful songs. And God bless him, Rob pulled out that cassette, played it for Rod, and and the rest and is history, had. right? But it was the right time in Rod's career yeah. for that song. That's fantastic. That's a, that's a nice story. It's nice when those things happen, but but you're right. You know, people yeah. talk about writing a hit song, but I think there's lots of potential hit songs that, that never see the light of day. And Everything has to line up to be the yeah. right time for the record at radio. It has to be the right time in the artist's career. So did you do a lot of touring and traveling? Did you did, Do you like that? Do you like the touring and traveling part of it and the live shows? I, I love them. Uh, I, I never used to like it. The whole yeah. time I was in L.A., I didn't play live once, and I was there for almost 20 years. So how many live awesome. shows do you do now in a year? Like, Do you do lots of live shows? Do you still tour or no? Well, I have uh, my own band, and I probably do 20 dates a year with that. Okay. And um, then I, I sing with... Um, uh, a songwriter band uh, with Ian Thomas, Murray McLaughlin, and Cindy Church. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's just like a folk band. And it, it just started with one show, and we were only going to do the one show, and, and and that was 20 years ago. So we do about an I do another 20 or 30 with them. So about 50 shows a year, which nice. is enough. Today I'm very happy to have as my guest Will Miller, singer, storyteller, humorist, TV personality, thinker, painter, and one who has lived an inspired life. Will Miller is best known as a member of the iconic band, the Irish Rovers, and he has left an indelible mark on the Canadian music scene. For the first 30 years of my career with the Irish Rovers, I was the leader of them and led them around yeah. the world. We had a very, very successful career. It wasn't like we were a major hit-making band, but over the years, we started with the Unicorn song, a little, a little bit of trivia for the unicorn song that much interests your readers. Yeah. We went down to California and we lived at Hermosa Beach and we were playing all the California folk clubs. London and San Francisco, the Troubadour Club in L.A., uh, the Hungry Eye. We played all those folk clubs in those early days. And we finally got a Decca record man to come out and listen to us. And he said, well, maybe I can do a St. Patrick's Day album with you guys. Fine. So we did a drinking pub album, uh, a cheapy version in in the Ice House, oh. in the club live. Yeah. And uh, that was the first album. But the producers all came and they listened to us. And one producer, he said, have you guys got any other kind of song that 
other than the Irish pub song that we could just slip into an album. So I said, well, I have this kid's song I sing to everybody seems to like. It's called The Unicorn. Sung it to him. He says, that's it. We're putting it on the album. And all the boys said, what? And the day that we recorded it in L.A., who was doing a recording in the other studio but Glenn Campbell, great yeah. guitar player. Oh, yeah. And Bud knew him, so Bud invited him in to do an intro and do the, the music for the Unicorn song. And that became a classic little lick. Yeah. So that was Glenn Campbell did that, God rest his soul. We we were driving across from the ski fields over the Rocky Mountains, and I'm the only driver, of course. The other the other three guys are sleeping in the back of the car. And I'm driving along late at night, that starry sky above the above the Rocky Mountains, incredible. And just driving along, listening to the radio. And the guy comes on and says, This is Don Lanigan from Albuquerque, New Mexico, 500,000 megahertz. And lo and behold, the unicorn came on the radio. Well, because we had just, they just released it. And pulled the car over to the side of the road, woke the boys up and say, Jesus, boys, wake up. Our song's on the radio. Turn the volume up full. And just at that time, this is a true story, by the way, just at that time, one of those smoky, Smokey and the Bandit type guys with his patrol car pulled on along beside us with his lights flashing, came out of the car, and I got out of the car. In those days, you could do that. Yeah. Sticking into his belt buckle, buckle, I think. <laughs> and, uh, he was... and he says, what the hell are you guys up to? I said, I, it's just a minute. That's our song. It's on the radio. So he came over, and he stood by the car door, and he's listening. And he opened the boot of his police car, and didn't he bring out a Martin guitar out of a case? Oh. And he he sung us a couple of little country songs. Wow. Said, you want to get in the car and come with us? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask you about that, Will, and and the, the touring. You guys went everywhere. I mean, I, I looked at your your dossier and, and all the places you've been. And I, did you ever get tired of the traveling? Did you like it? I loved going off to Australia and New Zealand. We went to New Zealand numerous times. I got tired of those dreary Midwest towns living in holiday inns. Yeah. Uh, we were always there, of course, in March because of St. Patrick's Day. We were always full up halfway through February until the, until after the middle of March. Yeah, we, we were always busy, but those winter weary towns of Pennsylvania and Detroit and uh, the great crowds—they loved the Rovers. Lots of good money there. Yeah, but I, I really got tired, and I think I got tired when I finally found the woman of my dreams. Yeah. And, we had our first son, and that changed everything because I moved out to Prince Edward Island, and we bought an old farmhouse out there. Okay. And my dear wife, Catherine, she lived in that farmhouse with a little one-year-old baby in the dead of winter while I'm phoning her, yeah. when I'm phoning her from Australia saying, oh, my God, Catherine, it's so beautiful and warm here. Yeah. I wish you were here. And she said, piss off and hung up. Yeah, there you go. You came from Northern Ireland, I guess, is where you were yeah, born. Yeah, we came from the town of Balamina, which is the same town that Timothy Eaton, the famous Canadian shopkeeper, came from. And in later years, Liam Neeson oh. came from Balamina as well. So we, we emigrated, like a lot of people did, in the mid-50s. A friend of ours opened up a folk club in Calgary called the Depression. Yeah. And oh my God, it was too. Huh. It was a basement downstairs of an old building 
in Calgary, but it was the greatest fun of my life, yeah. I think. We and I was down there singing my Irish songs, and so my brother, who was like 15 at the time, George and Jimmy, were both in Toronto. And they had formed a little Irish band of their own in Toronto with my dad yeah. and my mom. I mean, my sister. Yeah. They were singing Irish songs. And they sent me some tapes. They said they sound pretty good. So I talked to my brother. And he says, when you guys, why didn't you guys come out on a holiday? So, so they did. And I don't know whether to say fortunately or unfortunately. They came in an old school bus that somebody offered them a ride to Calgary oh. if they split the gas. Yeah. And there was a bloody cage of chickens in it there was three screaming children the man was a bit of a drinker driving the bus and so george and jimmy had to stand behind him singing songs to keep him awake wow. they arrived in i picked them up and the irish rovers were born when the boys came out to join me i was singing in the daytime to children and at nighttime we don our black turtleneck sweaters and we became part of the beat generation yeah and we went down and we were singing all these Irish drinking songs as the Irish Rovers. Yeah. And that got really popular. At one time in Canada, when the Irish Rovers finally got onto Canadian television, every Sunday night, we had for two years the highest watching audience of anything on CBC. Wow. You know, we had such a huge audience for such a long time. And I guess the hit songs were not long... Not many of them. We had we had the unicorn, and then we had wasn't that a party a few years later? Yeah. And more recently, who could ever forget the classic "Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer"? A big part of our stage show was also our comedy. Jimmy yeah. was a very funny, natural comedian, and so was my brother George in his own way. They were both funny guys, and that's why we created three leprechauns on our weekly television show. Yes, uh... it became really popular. <laughs> And yeah, I remember it well. I, I, I used to, to watch yeah. it. Well, I used to laugh more at them than the audience did because yeah. I was always, it was a typical Three Stooges in a way. I was a straight man and J Jimmy was the, the buffoon, the fat buffoon. Yeah. And my brother George was his little ignorant sidekick. It's funny how that show went on and then we ended up doing one hour specials. We, and to my wonderful amazement cbc had gave us such a big budget in those days because the show was very successful yeah. they let me write a script i'd say to the producer i want to go to new zealand see my old relatives let's do a show in new zealand lo and behold yeah. a canadian crew and us were flying down to new zealand to do a one-hour special of course we went to ireland about four different yeah. times that brought it all home finally if i'm singing a song about moonshine whiskey in Canada on a stage, it doesn't seem. But when I take it into the glens of Antrim, where I grew yeah. up, an old moonshiner, the king of the glens, Mickey McElhatton, sets up his still, gets out the fiddle, and the old, me and the boys will sit around the still while it's bubbling away, and we'd sing a rare old mountain Jew or yeah. something. So I, I was in heaven with those yeah, shows, no, right? We played in Carnegie Hall once to a sellout crowd. Yeah. We played in the Sydney Opera House, it always became like a giant kitchen party. And I think that's why people liked it. It was amazing because, he, I mean, you were hugely successful. Did you have any idea that it would be so huge? I mean, was it a bit of surprise? Like, were, were things surprising you as they came along? You know what, Dan? I think to this very day, my life is a friggin' surprise. I think that's what life is all about. 
you just have to roll with it. And I never, I never in my wildest dreams thought that first of all, we'd ever get a hit record when we released that unicorn song. What a life. It was great. Yeah. Les Vogt is an icon of the Canadian music scene and someone I've had the honor to work with many times myself. He's a living historian of sorts of the business and has basically done it all, starting out as a successful artist and then moving into management and promotion. So lots to talk about today. Thanks for joining me, Les. How are you, my friend? Just fine. And lots of people are interested in the history of Canadian music and the music makers. And, and you know, you have an advantage, vantage point that most people do not have because you've been active, I guess, since the late 50s, right? Yeah, it was uh, it was 1958, really, when uh, when things started to start a little bit, got going a little bit there. Um, in 1960, uh, when our, our record went big time locally, it uh, was very helpful. We recorded a, uh, a demo for Alan Parker, songwriter that called himself Sipson P. Kloop, funny name, but... Mm. But anyway, he'd, he'd get groups to make demos of his uh, songs, and then he'd try and sell them to the marketplace. And uh, we did it in 1958, and uh, it found it a home in, in 1960. It came out, uh, the Blamers came out uh, and became a number one hit in Vancouver. It's kind of fun, you know, you're a bunch of young guys, you get together, you like to sing, and and you're from Vancouver, so you put this thing together, and then all of a sudden, you're you're off to the races with this uh, song, and, and the fluke phone call, I guess, was, was what happened, right? Yeah, it was, uh, Jack Cullen was the uh, announcer of the day before Red Robinson came along, and he had a show called The Owl Prowl that came on late, and... Uh, we phoned his radio program, or, or one of the girls actually at our rehearsal did yeah. it and played us over the phone. And uh, he got such a good response to that, he brought us in the studio and uh, he recorded in his radio studio a bunch of stuff with us and started playing it like uh, like we were on the phone. <laughs> anyway, that's why we called ourselves the Prowlers. We had a, a record out that we thought was very good. Um, but um, uh, Red Robinson at CKWX or wherever he was at, I forget where he was at, he wouldn't play it because they, uh, they deemed us competition from another radio station be because okay. we were called the Prowlers. Yeah. And it was disappointing. And uh, anyway, when the Blamers uh, was scheduled to get released, we, we did it with just my name. Besides, the band had broken up by then. Okay, uh, so it became less vote or the less vote. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. all that was on the record, and uh, I teamed up with a with a local band that that yeah. I'd kind of been playing around with anyway on the weekends here and there and whatnot. Yeah. And we became less vote and the Blamers because of the record. Yeah, but you're—I mean—you're young guys. It's exciting, right? I mean, you—you you got sure. these songs, and you're on the radio, and you—you you end up charting, and and I guess you knocked off Elvis out of uh, from "It's Now or Never." That was the song, and then you got your song on there, and uh, we were number one for eleven weeks. So you didn't have managers. You said there there wasn't a lot of organization, right? I mean, it sounds like you started your own organization with the record company. Right? Yeah, there there was no um, route to follow. No. No rules or anything. Uh, we hadn't, couldn't copy anybody else. There were, there wasn't a manager or, or, or whatnot for for us to just go to. We had to figure it all out ourselves. So um, that that's why it was a slow process. 
And, and, yeah. and really, there wasn't a living to be made in the business at the time. Even with yeah. a hit record, it wasn't a business that, you know, could afford me raising a family or anything. So basically, um, I delivered milk as a, as a milkman and worked on the weekends with the band. That's, that's how that went. And I promoted our own dances, really. I learned yeah. how to make posters and, you know, distribute them. And I, I had a, a mailing list, much like, you know, you do uh, on the Internet today. So you were, you were working a day job and you were promoting your own dances and uh, starting to get into the promotion side of it because, I mean, you really had to, right? Eventually what happened for me was um, uh, I got calls from the places we were playing asking if I knew of any other entertainers or talent bands that they could, they could hire. And so that's how I got into being an agent. I started to, to get some of the other groups around into uh, the places I had played and I took a commission so I basically started a, a booking agency that's where that's how it started so your singing career I mean you had a smooth voice in the vein of the other male vocalists at the time you had a nice tone and good con- good voice control and good vocal control and stuff and uh, you know you had a, a viable career from what I can see and you had a hit song and but you just didn't carry on with that no uh I never had the confidence, really. In fact, when we recorded uh, Teenager's Dream in Seattle, uh, Joe Bowles had a song that he thought suited my voice, and he asked me if I would come down and and record a a song for him. And uh, I wasn't confident enough to do that, and I refused, which uh, was a big mistake, because the song that he wanted me to do was Come Softly to Me, which, which was the Fleetwoods. And it was yeah. just a studio manufactured song. They hadn't, it wasn't a group. They were looking for somebody to, to sing, to, you know, a lead vocalist for that song. And yeah. when I heard it, I thought, wow, you know, it really suited me. It was something yeah. I should have done. So, yeah. you know, when people ask me, as they often do, you know, what, you know, do I have any advice for up and coming performers, etc.? I always, I always suggest, uh, you know, they take advantage of every opportunity that comes their way. And and I uh, tell them this story. Once you got into the management side of it, that you preferred that, it was more an affinity to the management and the business part of it, which you're excellent at. So it seems you were drawn to that rather than chasing the next song or chasing the next live show for yourself. I think so. By the time uh, I, I got successful, and of course, you success always breeds more success so um i just didn't think about it anymore uh after a little while i was never comfortable on stage totally and um that i think had had the most to do with uh, my reasoning was uh, i wasn't comfortable you were moving in so many different directions i mean you had your own band you were still singing and playing you were booking and promoting other shows you were eventually got into running nightclubs and teen dances. I mean, you were you were moving in a lot of different directions. You must have had a lot of balls in the air at that time. I did. I had to settle on uh, letting some of it go because it was uh, affecting, uh, you know, my proficiency. <laughs> <laughs> I, I bet, yeah. Roy Orbison was what uh, what got me 
got yeah. me out of it, a lot, a lot of it, because I had an opportunity to work with him. We brought him in, scheduled a, a, a dance at the gardens. We were doing dances, Red and I, so it had to be after 61 when he came yeah, back. 62, you had him at the gardens, okay. right? 1962 is what I got written Six, here. 62. There, there yeah. you go. We had him at the gardens. It was scheduled to be a dance, and we found out that there was an old bylaw that said you had to be over 18 in the city to dance, and so... Hmm. It, it's it came back from the early days when you when when dancing was uh in, in kind of cabaret like things with a shelf under the table and you brought your own bottle and they served glasses and yeah. pop and 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 it was for over eight over adults so uh yeah. okay. really really that's what a dance was so they uh they brought that old bylaw out to battle rock and roll and they uh, wow. uh we had to change it to a concert so yeah. The Roy Orbison dance became a concert, and we had two thousand people paid, and it nice. was a it was a sold out concert. Oh, and super! We're we're now in the concert business. You formed a, a somewhat of a partnership and a friendship with Roy Orbison, right? So you knew him well, and you, you went to England with him right after. Was it well, the following at, year? Yeah, I, at that time, uh, I the following year I went to England uh, just to hang out with the band because they were touring, and they yeah. knew me, and and we liked liked each other, and so I was able to hang out with them. Uh, we we went to a the Bag and Ales Club there, which was for entertainers. Yeah. It was kind of interesting. Uh, Tom Jones was sitting at Roy's in the band's table. I was with yeah. them, of course. Nice. And uh, they wanted Lennon was there. John Lennon was in the audience, and they wanted to meet him, but they didn't didn't know how to go about it. But anyway, he went to the can, went to the washroom. So they yeah. followed him in. They were gonna just accidentally bump into him and say hi, you know, which they did. And, uh, hi, we're uh, Roy Orbison's band, and. And and Lennon said, "Yeah, so what?" <laughs> and they were nice. going to invite him over to the table anyway. They came back to the table and just said, uh, uh, "I don't know if I should say this." They said, "What an <laughs> asshole he was." Joy Gregorish is a pioneer in the Canadian music industry, a singer songwriter based in Winnipeg. Uh, he had some AM success in the seventies and is perhaps best known for writing and recording the wedding song. He's multifaceted as well, having worked as a radio DJ and children's entertainer with a popular TV show and as an MC at many events. It's an impressive resume by any measure. So thanks for joining me today, Joey. How are you? Hello, Dan. I, I am good. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> so you're a Winnipeg guy and you, you stayed in Winnipeg while other people left. What's the deal with that? Well, you know, I mean, uh, yeah, I guess ideally a, a lot of entertainers would like to move at some point. I was born here, raised here, the whole bit. And, uh, you know, Winnipeg's like, for me, it's like an old shoe. It's very comfortable. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, when you get out and travel a little bit, uh, Winnipeg just felt very good to get back home to every time you went out on a tour or something like that. And, uh, you know, after... Really, my career was like from 70 to 75 as far as being active, you know, touring yeah. and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, after it was over, I just I just felt comfortable here. And there were, you know, when one door closed, another opened. I actually started with them, uh, the casinos of Winnipeg in 1999. You know, uh, that was a continuation of of my career there. And it, you know, it really was a surreal career for me, you know, to get an MC job. Now, 
when I approached that job, when they said, you know, like, could you come and would you be interested in being our, you know, house MC? I said, I'd love to. And what I did was approach that job a little differently in the fact that I'd really, really study up on the entertainers and I'd find stuff that maybe, you know, would be a little bit of a departure from a normal intro. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I found too that a a lot of entertainers were really gun shy about an MC starting their show. And the one story I can relate to was Crystal Gale and her manager. And he said, listen, can we, uh, can we talk before the show, before the introduction? I understand that you're the house MC. I said, sure. So we, we went into my dressing room and he goes, um, I, uh, I don't know how to uh, say this, but uh, I said, oh, uh, you're kind of afraid of what I might say. And maybe I'm just kind of a make some noise out there, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> he goes, yeah, that's kind of what we're worried about. I said, what I do is I, I create an intro and I commit it to memory, but I also print it out and I give it to the manager or the road manager. And I need your approval to say this. He reads my intro and he goes, Oh my God, I will absolutely punch you out. If you don't say this, this is Marm, you know, (laughs) so that's, you know, and every, every entertainer, uh, I, I treated that way. And I mean, it was surreal for me to be able to intro uh, my musical heroes and some of them have become really good friends. Well, good for you. I mean, uh, it's great that you got to meet these guys. And of course the, the casinos have the budget to bring in the acts that you want to see, right? The classic acts like that. You know, Dan, I'll, I'll, I'll say this and I've said it over and over and again, I never get tired of saying it. And you know this for a fact, I wish the kids today could have what we had because we had such a, a fantastic era of music. The Winnipeg sixties here was like absolutely fat. It was like little Liverpool. Yeah. I called it liver pay. Yeah, nice. uh, it, it was, you know, I mean, a lot of stuff came out of here and I, I just wish, you know, uh, the kids could have what we had, uh, you know, we had a place to play every weekend. You know, the worst thing that happened in those days is you broke into your dad's liquor cabinet. <laughs> Let me ask you, what was your musical background? You played, you were one of those guys sort of similar in my experience to you tried everything where right? you played drums and organ and singing and just did everything. Yeah. My first instrument was actually the violin, Oh, the violin, because my dad was, uh, you know, like he was like the, uh, the kitchen party player. Yeah. The fiddler, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, so I would, I think that's where my, you know, well, I know that's where my musical influence came from because him and his brother and my auntie Marie would, you know, gather in the kitchens, uh, here in Winnipeg, like a lot of people did and they'd play all these fiddle tunes. And then my auntie Marie could do justice to a, you know, Patsy Klein song. Nice. And, you know, when I was growing up, I, I thought, wow, this is so cool. And so one day I said to my dad, you know, do you think I could play the violin like you do? And he was good. Yeah. And uh, that lasted three months, Dan. <laughs> if that, you know, it's a tricky instrument to play. It's a- <laughs> it is a hugely hard instrument to play. Of course, 
the Beatles came around, you know, I, I thought at that time, well, I don't see any one of them playing a violin, you know. <laughs> and uh, so I took up the drums. I thought Ringo was very unique cool. as a drummer. So yeah. I took up the drums and uh, I drummed with my local group, uh, the Mongrels, yeah. for a couple of years. And then things started to change. We had a lead lead singer that was very much like a little Mick Jagger and, uh, you know, moved around and everything. And uh, he, he really didn't have that terrific of a voice, but he, you know, he'd make up for it in showmanship. And so we're playing at Maple Leaf Community Club and his parents had warned him, look, you've got to get your grades up or you won't be in a band. And he, you know, kind of a flaky guy, he laughed it off. And, um, so we're playing at Maple Leaf Community Club and 45 minutes before the gig, his brother shows up, his older brother, and hauls him out of the band. And we're oh. going, what? Oh, well, Dave, you can't do this. You can't. He's our lead singer. He said, sorry, he's been warned. My, uh, you know, the parents, uh, you know, mom and dad sent me out to pick him up and he's not playing anymore. So there we were 45 minutes before oh. the gig. And. So the, we 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 had a, like an urgent meeting, and the band says, "Well, Joey, you, you must know most of the lyrics because you kind of sing along with Jeff or provide backup harmony." And I went, I, "I'll do my best." We got through the night, and then they said, "Look, why don't you just become our lead singer, and we'll find a drummer." This would have been um, obviously around sixty five, sixty six when this yeah. all you know transpired that I went you know started singing been singing ever since no that's yeah. good and you got the personality for it and you got the 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 demeanor for it right so that that counts a lot too be just being yeah, able to I'm, speak and just being a front guy right yeah you know up front and going here's a song <laughs> that we like to do because we do a lot of good songs eh? yeah how much do i owe you for these compliments i mean i don't think i can afford the payments no, no, you know it's, it's good hey, i never i never blow smoke i listen to it and i see what i think and if i don't say anything then uh that speaks volume. So uh, it was good. <laughs> Thank yeah. you, when the mongrels got established as the last, you know, the last formation, the, the, the group that was, you know, in the top five, top, you know, top groups in Winnipeg, yeah. um, Randy Backman, uh, came a calling and, um, uh, the, our manager at the time was Lauren Safer. So he's Burton's manager now. Oh. And Lorne arranged this meeting with Randy. He said, Randy has got some songs. Uh, he's writing songs that you should listen to and we'll do some recording. And so we got together with Randy and he had four songs that were really quite interesting. I was told after, so there is some credence to this. That was the beginning of the guests who being the rest of the group being a little bit, you know, okay, what are you doing writing songs for everybody else? And, yeah. you know, that kind of became a little bit of a disturbance within the group. That's what I was hmm. told. So we, uh, we recorded, we went down to sound 80 in uh, Minneapolis and uh, the engineer at that time was Tommy Jung and, you know, just a great guy, nice guy to work with. And Randy came and produced us. And oh. so we did these four songs and um, sitting in the station was one of them. And Randy had originally written it for a Tom Jones kind of singer. And it was like, here I sit, I'm the only one, you know, like yeah. that. 
So we changed the melody. Here I sit, I'm the only one. Made it more of a uh, almost a midi, um, middle of the road rock ballad. But the song that we had the most success with was Funny Day. Yeah. And Funny Day uh, found its way on Dick Clark's American Bandstand. Oh. So here it is. It's a Saturday night. I guess uh, American Bandstand ran around five o'clock in the evening here. So here's Dick Clark. Uh, uh, we're going, I can't, we can't believe this. We're all just huddled around. And uh, Dick Clark goes, no, we're going to play right the record. Here is a group from Canada. They call themselves the Mongrels. And let's listen to Funny Day. And we're just like on the moon. Yeah. So they play Funny Day. And uh, then they ask the kids, okay, rate the record. What do you think? <laughs> and the kids hated it. Oh, really? It. They, <laughs> they, they didn't exactly hate the song. They said, well, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's too fast to dance to. So then they have this lovely sound effect that goes, eh, yeah, you yeah. know. And so we played at River Heights. That was the mecca the mecca of playing community clubs in Winnipeg here. River Heights is where, I mean, the guests who played River Heights and Burton Cummings and the Deverons. And so, you know, yeah. that was that was the big gig. So we went to play River Heights that night and I stepped up the mic and sang, uh, you know, we'd like to do a song that's out right now. Uh, uh, it's called Funny Day. And <laughs> the audience to hear. <laughs> Thanks for checking out these short bits from my much longer conversations with previous Liner Notes guests. Don't forget you can listen to each full interview at either linernotes.ca or on any podcast platforms. Just search for Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Until next time, I'm Dan Harris.